Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Nerds on History. I'm Eric Brickmont. I'm Sarah Ashley. And today, our very special episode on Everest. Yes, we are going to talk about Mount Everest. Indeed. And and uh, and Sarah, mm-hmm. who climbed Mount Everest? The first to summit Mount Everest, that is. That would be Sir Edmund Hillary. Fantastic. This has been an absolutely wonderful episode, It was Sarah. riveting, wasn't it? It was, it was. Should we do some uh, listener feedback? Yeah, sure. I believe we have some from Jerry, and Jerry writes, Hi. Thank you, Jerry, for writing in. We really do appreciate it. Guys, do not forget to support the podcast, and we will see you next time. Same nerd time, same nerd channel, nerdonomy.com. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. Well, actually, welcome to Nerds on History. I'm Sarah Ashley. And I'm Eric Brickmont. And, and Brian. Yeah, Brian. Brian is not here. Nope, I killed him. Yeah. Well, Again. I mean, we kind of all knew it was going to happen <laughs> eventually. No, actually, so Brian is currently on vacation. He is um, driving across from Florida. Florida. Uh, to Florida. 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 Yeah. Mexican food. We're having flautas. We are. We are. <laughs> Florida. Florida. Um, <laughs> Uh, no, he's driving over from Florida um, with a, a good friend of ours. Um, you'll hear all about that on Nerds on Film, I'm sure. And I'm 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 sure they'll just do perfectly innocent and and wonderful things, and and nothing nothing at all um, um, terrible. Nothing inappropriate. No, nothing nothing at all. Anyway, uh, so Brian will be back with us next time. But for now, it's just Eric and I. We're holding down the fort. We, we are. Bed? And I think the last time we did this was a long time ago. Uh, it wasn't Woodstock, was it? I think it might have been. Oh, my God. That was a long time ago. That was a long time ago. You weren't even a regular host at the time. Nope. You were uh, you were filling in from Brian because mm-hmm. he was doing a Brian-related thing, which yep. is usually either theater or theater and uh <laughs> pretty much yeah but uh now hey this is our chance because you and brian had a whole bunch of you know yes. just you you and brian episodes when i was when i was away on leave oh yeah it's because you keep popping out babies well you know i'm really good at it what uh, can clearly. i say i should say martha's really good at it. <laughs> <laughs> she's a pro now I, i'm just support staff yes yeah Anywho, we have a, a really fantastic episode. Before we jump into the topic, and you yep. can probably kind of guess based on our funny little intro what, 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 what it might be. Maybe. Who knows? We'll see. Our, our listeners are pretty clever. Uh, I, I want to mention something in reference to our last two episodes real quick because it happened right as they dropped. Uh, and that is that the Planetary Society, Society, who is, of course, led by the amazing Bill Nye. Bill Nye, the science guy. He's Bill, the Bill, CEO. Bill, Bill, Bill Nye, the, the science, science guy. guy. Bill Nye, the science guy. Sorry. Thank you. Science uh, rules. <laughs> <laughs> of course, that was necessary. Thank you very much, sir. Uh, they've been around for a while, uh, long since uh, good old Carl Sagan, uh, the very, very famous uh uh, astronomer and astrophysicist who started the entire thing proposed that we take our uh, our our exploration of the solar system and, and own it and not just leave it in the hands of government organizations but have civilian organizations that make this a reality and we, we've taken a huge step forward uh, with the launch of light sail one light sail one this is a really wicked awesome cool concept okay uh and it's been around for a while in fact carl sagan is the one who who proposed it in a in a real serious fashion it had been suggested and theorized before that but he had actually come up with kind of a game plan to make it happen and now it has and the idea is that photons right emit 
actually emit force and, right. and pressure that can be measured. And it's a very, very small amount. But when you have a large, flat, reflective surface, you could actually pick up a little momentum. And yeah. when you're in the vacuum of space, if you were to use something like this, like the sail of a ship would pick up the wind, you can start building that momentum and use it as a form of propulsion. So this is something that was just recently tested. Uh, uh, we, we did have the U.S. Air Force to kind of help out a little bit with that because we have since retired the shuttles. So they have their own little mini shuttle. Uh, it's an experimental uh, space plane that they've been sending up a little bit on kind of limited secret, top secret missions. But every once in a while, they let a civilian payload go along with it. Nice. Including Light Sail 1, which is in preparation for their next launch, Light Sail 2, in 2016, that will take uh, this what is more of a testing ground mission and turn it into a real serious mission objectives. We got this to do, that to do kind of uh, situation. So more to come with that. Maybe we can revisit space probes in the future. I know I kind of probed the hell out of it last time. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, I said it. Um, but <laughs> we, we, we will we will see what is to come. Awesome. Thank you for that update, Eric. Yeah. But Sarah, what are we focusing on for the next hour? What's what's this episode all about? Well, so I decided that for this episode, I really wanted to bring attention to um, an area of the world that doesn't get talked about super often, but has actually made the news um, very recently, just last month. Um, I want to talk about Nepal. Yes. Unfortunately, this area has had a really interesting, I mean, it's a very troublesome political history for sure. And um, now with these absolutely devastating earthquakes that they just recently had in April, um, it's it's just really taking a huge toll in the country. It's yeah. like, I think over a million people are homeless, um, thousands of people dead. Many even without more electricity. Yeah, even more thousands injured. Um, they're just, they're really, really suffering. So I really wanted to just call attention, ask our listeners to, you know, Hey, let's, let's enjoy a little bit of history of Nepal, hear what they've gone through already, appreciate them for, you know, everything that they have survived already and now what they're going through now. And, you know, this is why they yeah. need support. Ab absolutely. And it's amazing because from my perception, mm -hmm. in this country, we don't really talk a lot about Nepal. We talk about its big neighbors, right? We talk yeah. about China in the north. India. We talk about India. Uh -huh. We talk about Tibet. Yep. Uh, largely because Brad of, Pitt spent seven years there. <clears throat> he sure did. <laughs> oh boy, did he! Uh, and he was German at the time too, which is just crazy. Crazy. But uh, of course, we're talking about seven years in Tibet, the, yes. the famous movie about the early life of the Dalai Lama, and and the Dalai Lama, of course, has done a lot to bring attention. Uh, mm -hmm. of Tibet to the West. Yeah. But poor little Nepal just kind of gets left out, even though it is the home of Mount Everest, which is kind of why we brought in the whole Mount Everest joke in the beginning. Mm -hmm. uh, it was the birthplace of the Buddha. Yep. Uh, we're talking about the home of the of the uh, stupa architecture mm -hmm. uh, that is so important to both Buddhism and the, the Hindu religion. And, uh, and, and a whole bunch of other stuff. I mean, really, we'll go into more detail in a little bit. But it's given us a lot. We, it's only fair that we kind of give it a little bit more recognition. Yeah. And yaks, ladies and gentlemen, yaks. Yaks. <clears throat> yaks are very important to Nepal. They're important to me. Um, <laughs> are they? I, they really are. Okay. I feel like they're they're very misunderstood sure. creatures. Yeah. Uh, they're very lovable. They're very loyal. Mm -hmm. uh, I think they're up. I think like golden retriever 
and, and then yak is right underneath it. Wow. Yeah. I Very few no people idea. realize that. No, yeah, they're 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 loved. Uh, that's 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 true. Okay. Um, <laughs> Thanks, Eric. This is why I'm here. Let's, yeah, clearly, let's face it, folks. clearly. To well, bring, let's bring attention to the attention to the yak cause. Yes. 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 Well, let's go. So let's go ahead and talk about Nepal then. Um, yes, like you said, neighbor countries: um, India, China, Tibet, and really the Nepal just all kind of centers all around the the Kathmandu Valley. Right. That is that is pretty much where all the action of Nepal has kind of taken place and they've ex- like completely expanded out and, and contracted back down. Yeah. Oh yes. It's so it's been all over the place, but from, from what we know from, you know, you know, archeology, span uh, they've found like Neolithic tools over there suggesting that people have been in this area for 11,000 years. Yeah. Um, so long time. Where these folks came from originally is really hard to, to pin down. Right. And, and chances are it wasn't just one wave or migration of people, as is the tradition in Nepal, really. It's a mixing pot. So you yeah. had people coming from all different areas. And Kathmandu Valley is, is by far the most secure. Mm-hmm. It's a uh, you know great source of, of water and natural stone nearby. So it's, it's a good place to settle. And it makes sense that that's where you would find things uh, kind of blossoming out of growing out of and expanding yeah and there's definitely um you know people who are kind of more in the this valley area and that kind of then extend into the himalayas and um become are more mountainous people so um very interesting mixes of culture in there as well you know you kind of have different lifestyles kind of based on your location of where you're living so very very interesting there but yes as eric mentioned um in the 6th century BC, we're going to jump ahead a little bit, um, Prince Siddhartha Gautama, and we go ahead and we're just going to apologize now for butchering anything that we say. That one, I think I know. <clears throat> I think it's Gautama. Gautama? Okay. Gautama. Perfect. Yeah. Thank you. Um, but I do want to just point out, there's a lot of... We're going we're gonna to struggle with this a little bit. We're Americans, people. Uh, we're and, trying. And, and hopefully through the, the magic of editing, you won't hear most of our most ridiculous attempts to pronounce them. <laughs> but uh, bear with us, please. Yeah. Um, but Prince Siddhartha Gautama uh, was born in this area. Uh, he was born to the Sakya royal family. And he embarked on the path of meditation um, that led him to enlightenment. And he became the Buddha. That's right. Like the Buddha. The Buddha. The Buddha that we all <laughs> know and love. Yeah. And he and he was the one who then took Buddhism and, you know, spread it around the East. And, you know, heavily in India, too. So... And and this is the this is the historical account of Buddha, and it's important to acknowledge the fact that the, there's been a lot of research into this, and there's a lot of different opinions and topics when it comes to uh, where Buddha was, who he was being taught uh, his practices from, uh, and where he was doing his teaching. And there's a lot of the how should I say, you know, I want to be I want to be respectful, of course, to everybody, mm-hmm. but when it comes down to religion, there's always a mixture of of history. And a mis- mixture of tradition. Yes. You know, we see this with Christianity, right? So we celebrate the birth of Jesus with the celebration of Christmas, which is done in the winter. But most, you know, biblical scholars agree that Jesus was most likely born sometime in in, in the spring. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> that's just one example of how we have yeah. these. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, it doesn't really surprise me because in Nepal, it's early history was, you know, yeah. really made up that way. Yeah. It was a mixture of kind of traditions mm-hmm. and, and uh, myth, if you will mixed with who may or may not have been actual rulers. We know that the Buddha existed, and we know yeah. that he was a real person, but a lot of the details of his life are, are kind of 
unclear. Serious? Yeah, and so is early, you know, Napoleon. Oh yeah, you know, no, it's, history, it's really right? sparse. So um, let me clarify: this was um, sixth century BCE, right? Um, when the Buddha was born, right? So, and then after that, it's a little sparse because not really much was written down about this area. Um, we know that there were a series of empires and dynasties that were kind of coming into play. Basically, this area was made up of a bunch of separate city-states and, you know, kind of little ruling kingdoms that, um, you know, sometimes fought with each other. <laughs> they kind of do, yeah. And um, and there tended to be, you know, kind of like these mini empires in this area. So, um, you know, around, uh, you know, like around the uh, 3rd century BCE, the Ashoka had an empire kind of around North India, which kind of extended into this area. Um, in the 4th century, there was a, a different one, Samudragupta. Um, and then around four, um, around the 4th century BCE, the Lachavi kingdom came into power. And this is where um, we started to see some important temples being erected. Um, one of the, the legacies of the Lachavis at this point was the um, Changu Narayan Temple. Um, which is, you know, part of like kind of, it's a world heritage site. Yeah. It's, it's a very important place. Um, like Nepal has one of the densest concentration of world heritage sites on the planet, if not the densest concentration. I mean, yeah. there's, there's so much there, uh, that needs to be protected, not just from natural disasters, but also as we'll explore a little bit later from the political disasters that happen in that country. What's interesting about that particular temple though, was that a little bit later, um, Nepal was facing some invading forces and this temple, even though so many other temples around were completely destroyed, this one was never touched because it was tucked so far back that they couldn't find it. Mm. Yeah. I just think that's really, really interesting that it's like, Ooh, smart, smart little, planning little on that. Hidden crevices and, and yeah. valleys within valleys. Mm -hmm. That's, that's, well, that's a good thing. Yeah. I mean, if you've, if you've got such a diverse landscape and you, we are talking about the Himalayas, right? So we're talking about, uh, Pretty incredible elevation mixed with, you know, lots of uh, very rocky outcrop, very difficult roads. I mean, even in Nepal today, it's extremely to get extremely hard to get from one place to the other. Oh, absolutely. Their, the railroad system is vital to being able to move around and small planes mm -hmm. because the roads are, you know, Messy. a mess. And, yeah. you know, all you have to do is, is have one serious winter. Right. And what was a great road just a few weeks ago has now been completely mm -hmm. washed out or uh, covered by a landslide. So, I mean, that, that's, that was going on no. throughout all of their history. Yeah, yeah. Well, and um, we'll get a little bit into why their roads are still so underdeveloped later. But <laughs> for, <at least> for <laughs> now, um, but this was a very much a transitional time. So especially around 750, we're seeing kind of a, a transitional kingdom uh, that lasts till about... 1200 like right. it's it's just a like you know kind of just but finally we can really stalemate but it's at least a kingdom yeah and now we can actually kind of pinpoint who people are there's a direct lineage mm -hmm. there's much more clarity around the the leaders in nepal their history is finally being recorded in a more consistent fashion whereas before it was really a mix of traditions and myths and uh, legends being told about particular kings, not unlike ancient Egypt. And I know oh, sure. Eric always brings the day back to ancient Egypt. Egypt. But uh, the ancient Egyptians themselves, before they really started to record their history, had the same problem where they were just kind of mixing in a legend and myth and trying to make sense of it and recording it long after the fact. In fact, mm -hmm. much of what they're talking about in terms of their earlier rulers, the first 29 kings in, in, these, in these kingdoms, 
uh, was written about almost 400 years after the fact, and which is also true of the life of Buddha. A lot of what we know about Buddha, or what we what we have written about Buddha, I should say, uh, comes to us by accounts from people who, who who lived far after his death. Right, right. So then, right around 1100, this is where this is a, a very interesting change for for Nepal. This is where um, the Mala Empire or Mala uh, Dynasty comes into play. Right. And they rule over this area till about 1484. So, you know, almost so, 500 years, right? A yeah. little, little over 500 years, actually. A long time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're, they are holding down the fort. Um, Mala actually means wrestler in Sanskrit, which I find really interesting. Um, these are people that were um, actually exiled from India. And they came in and established themselves as like a governing kind of military class. Um, Kshatriya. Is mm. like in the mm-hmm. in the caste mm-hmm. system. That's where it where they established themselves. Um, well, no wonder they lasted for as long as they did. Yeah, and that was the stabilizing force this region had been looking for for hundreds and hundreds of years. Yes, yeah, and it's really interesting because it was during this time that you know the society and the cities became like organized. Yeah, and we saw you, you see religious festivals popping up during this time, and and people were actually encouraging literature and music and art, which is amazing for you know a rural area that is kind of isolated and you know we're granted an important trading route but still it's you know a lot of people are just kind of focused on surviving at this point yeah um so it's it's a very very interesting time for um extra kind of flourishment of culture it it almost kind of reminds me of of the old west in the united states and these these small towns and settlements that were just trying to make it out more or less kind of in the middle of nowhere but what they were were crossroads right so there were areas where people were, were constantly moving back and forth and there was a lot of trade going on. And, and that's what allowed a lot of these towns in the early West to be able to, to prosper and survive. Mm-hmm. But they had a lot of problems that, you know, the folks of, of Nepal were facing too, including a lot of crime and thievery and, yeah. and you know, bandits and things of that yeah. nature really kind of hurting that development. But as soon as you have strong leadership comes in, come in mm-hmm. and you start organizing people – that's when things start to flourish. I mean, yeah. you see that again and again throughout all of history. Yeah. And, you know, so this is a considered one of the one of the golden eras, again, because it's a, an idea or a time of development. So uh, in 1200, Aradev Mala was, became the first monarch of the Mala dynasty. And he rules in the Kathmandu Valley uh, till about 1216. So not super duper long. Right. 16 years ain't nothing to sneeze at, but still. <laughs> um, His successor, however, uh, lasted a bit longer, I believe. I think so. Yeah, and that was uh, Abala uh, Mala. And his his say mo- that three times. Fast. Yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, I want to I want to pause for a moment, and I want to talk yes. a little bit about somebody from his era, okay. who was extraordinarily important uh, and is recognized for his contributions to the art that we see throughout so much of the Asian continent. Oh yeah, do that. Uh, and that is uh, Aniko. So Aniko, uh, as he's as he's known in, in Chinese. Uh, he lived from 1245 to 1306, and he was quite literally the father of the stupa. He was the one who who more or less invented the stupa and introduced uh, that type of building style into Asia. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we, we so many times building styles become so, um, how do I want to say, difficult to kind of pinpoint down their origins, right? We, 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 yeah. We don't know exactly who contributes to them, particularly as you go back further in history or with, with cultures that don't have as well-documented recorded sure. history. Uh, they just kind of 
materialize almost out of nowhere. Well, yeah, and then because a lot of people are getting influences from surrounding areas and then kind of just creating something totally new. Right. It's hard to, to pinpoint the exact architect. Not everybody can be as documented as Frank Lloyd Wright. Yeah, exactly, so. <laughs> exactly. Especially the further back you go. Right. right. Uh, but with Aniko, we have this very young, very intelligent uh, gentleman who grew out of the, the artisan class within Nepal. He was a painter. He was a sculptor. He was an architect. Uh, he was a builder. He got down into the mud and dirt and clay and stone and, and worked in his hands, as, as most artists generally do, and was well-recognized throughout the region for his, for his, his work. But um, he, he also found his, his calling when he was brought into Tibet to, to build uh, the white stupa. Uh, and, you know, this was done uh, in the court of the, the Mongol emperor Kabula Khan. So we're all very familiar with Kabula Khan, right? So we've got um, Genghis Khan that everyone all knows well. Uh, but Kabula Khan is the one who really made the, the biggest impact. And he's right. the one who began that Mongol rule of, of China. And if it wasn't for him and his patronage, uh, Aniko may very well have just kind of disappeared into the annals of history. But instead, he took a chance on this young kid who was just 17 years old when he was put on his first project. And he produces this stunning, beautiful piece of work that is still in existence to this day makes a name for himself and kind of becomes this ragged riches almost story, right? Because he goes from Tibet and he travels to China and from China there, he works on uh, a wide variety of different projects. Mm -hmm. um, apparently was a bit of a, of a ladies man oh, as hey. well. Uh, he uh, is known to have had uh, a wife in Nepal, uh, a wife in China, and I think seven other women of which he had a total of six sons and eight daughters. Wow. So he was... Uh, you have some catching up to do, Eric. <laughs> I know this guy like blows me out of the water. That's that's fine. I don't have a problem with that. Uh, but he, he not uncommon this... in this area though for a long time for yeah. for for men to have multiple wives. No, absolutely, very very much so. But you know, he left a huge mark in relatively short period of time. I mean, he was sixty one years old when he died, which is you know quite good quite good for the time. Sure. Um, but he was also responsible for several other. Um, restoration works that have been done mm -hmm. so many gifts that have been given to the emperor from different parts of the world that had a long and and you know detailed history of their own he came in and performed restoration on a variety of statues mm -hmm. his portrait portrait work of the chinese emperors laid the foundation for all further portraits straight through uh ming and Qing dynasty i wow. mean it just continued on for hundreds of years and he's a he's a national hero in nepal he's recognized um, in a variety of different ways. So mm -hmm. there's lots of statues of him. There's a highway named after him. Um, there's there's a lot of different ways that he's he's shown. Uh, and he's important to mention mm -hmm. as we kind of get up to sure. this time period because it wasn't for him, China and its architecture and the surrounding regions would all look uh, a lot very different. different. Yeah. Very different, yeah. That's amazing. Well, I think we also really do want to point out um, 1255. Yeah. It's important 1255 time. Was a hard time for Kathmandu Valley. Yeah. Um, basically, there was a major earthquake. We don't know how major because... Well, I mean, we can guess because most of the major earthquakes in this region have been in the 7.8 to 8.8 yeah. .8 magnitude, which is just like the, the recent earthquakes that we, right. we've had in Nepal. Mm -hmm. uh, and this one was just as devastating as what we've seen here. In fact, one third of the population one of Kathmandu third of population, Valley yeah. was wiped out. Yeah, 30,000 people, um, including the king at including the time. Including the king. Yeah. 
and you know, it's not, I don't say that with surprise to say that, oh, kings can't possibly die in natural disasters, but the, the, the fact that they recorded it and were so honest and, and upfront about it yeah. uh, and the fashion in which he died, that is actually kind of surprising. Sure. Uh, a lot of folks would kind of overwrite that aspect of it or spin a tale to make it, uh, you know, a propaganda piece. Mm-hmm. But instead there's this sense of honesty that, you know, yeah. what the earth gives, the earth takes away. And uh, this devastating earthquake killed not just peasants, but the highest of, of the high. Right. So, um, so obviously Nepal has a history of earthquakes. <laughs> yeah, we know that. It's, it's and, and and devastating ones too. Some some real serious serious earthquakes, but they were able to bounce back. Um, they kind of reached a high point under um, the third Mala dynasty of Jayashithi Mala. Sure. Um, that sounds good to me. Yeah. And if we've learned anything from doing this show as long as we have, is that when Sarah's here, we leave the pronunciations to Sarah and not Eric. <laughs> and sometimes I get it right. Not yeah. always. We I'm even not have some perfect. listener feedback this episode that will address some of my pronunciations. But yes, I'm please. sure. I'm we're, sure. There's a little foreshadowing going on. Okay. So let's, let's move on. So, um, but they kind of united the Kathmandu Valley a little bit, codified some laws, kind of established the caste system. So it was a little bit. Um, a little bit more stable mm-hmm. um, as we we're getting through there. We keep getting stabler. I know we're we're getting there. Um, but in around 1345, there was um there was that invasion that I was talking about the yeah. the Muslim invasion by Sultan Shams ud Din of Bengal, which you know affected a lot more than just Nepal. I mean, yeah. the the reason that Kashmir still is a Muslim country today is because of that very invasion. So right. it had a lasting impact on the entire region. Absolutely. Um, and they basically plundered Hindu and Buddhist shrines kind of all throughout. Um, again, with the exception of that one that I mentioned earlier, the the Changu Narayan temple. Which, you know, if I was living in Nepal at the time, I would sign up for the priesthood and request to be transferred <laughs> Can I go there, there immediately. <laughs> Can I go there? I want to go there. <laughs> Apparently I want to go to place. the oldest standing building in this country. Please. Yep. And, you know, just something I want to kind of throw out there because I feel like we, we kind of unintentionally skipped over it a little bit. You know, we talked a lot about Buddha and his birthplace and the birthplace of Buddhism. And obviously Buddhism had its, its place in Nepal for a very long time, but it was slowly and uh, transitionally replaced by Hinduism. Yeah. So just to, to kind of paint the picture for this current time period, Hinduism at this point has been around for several hundred years and is the predominant religion in, in Nepal. Just just to kind of help clarify and, and paint that picture real fast. Okay, great. Um, and so uh, Jayachithi Matha was ruling kind of over the area around um, 1382 to 1395. And just to clarify, you didn't say giant sheepy Mothra, right? No, I did not. Okay, just making Jaya- sure. Shithi. God, I can't even say it. I said it before. I said it before. I'm, I'm sticking with what I said. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I don't mean to be disrespectful. I'm just screwing with Sarah. Yeah. He's just trying to throw me off and he's doing a great job. Um, but after he passed away, um, his sons kind of took over the kingdom. And then Yakshamala, um, Jayashithi's grandson, ruled till about 1482. And at that point, yeah. the Kathmandu Valley was right. divided up into three separate kingdoms among his sons. Which they then continued continued to fight with each other. Yeah, sure. Of course yeah. they did. Um, <laughs> well, you know, the the whole area was extremely rich with trading routes in and out of Tibet. So it would make sense that, you know, if they, they couldn't consolidate power, they just continued to disrupt each other as much as humanly possible. Yeah. So the, the areas that were split up, though, were um, it was Kathmandu, 
bad gown and Patan. Right. So they, and it was not just divided into these three kingdoms, but it was also kind of divided actually into 46 independent principalities. <laughs> so it was really kind of um, a, a little messy. <laughs> and um, among these little kingdoms was the kingdom of Gorka. Right. Which is going to definitely come into play here in about 100 years. But what's interesting to note is as much as there was, uh, you know, fighting, actual warfare going on, mm -hmm. there was other types of rivalry that were of a positive nature, particularly sure. cultural rivalry, right? Yeah. So there was a lot of competition that who could build the bigger and better temple. And mm -hmm. as a result of that, it progressed and moved forward temple architecture, uh, you know, more and more steadily. Yeah. And that, that, that's a good thing. Oh, you know, rivalry and competition is not necessarily a bad thing, right? Yeah. Uh, murder and stuff is generally bad. Yeah, we don't want to do that. No. But there's other types of ways that this can, can play out in, in sure. a positive light. Sure, absolutely. And the reason why we know so much about this area um, is because there were a lot of Capuchin friars who were coming in and out of Tibet and... And, and recording what they were Recording seeing. all of this stuff because... If we have learned anything on this podcast, <laughs> the key takeaway is that monks wrote a lot. <laughs> they sure did. <laughs> so thanks, monks. Yeah. Well, monks I mean, and friars. It kind of makes sense, right? Y yeah. You don't have a whole lot of other extracurricular activities that you're really doing. Nope, not really. You know, there's, there's the beer making. Yeah. Right? Right? Yeah. And there's the writing. And and the gardening. And the tennis. And other than that, yeah. <laughs> tennis? <laughs> Monks are big on tennis. Okay. I've learned something today. You all have. <laughs> um, so this tiny little um, kingdom, however, kind of expanded. And in 1559, the Gorka kingdom was officially established with um, Shaw rulers. Yeah, just just a little bit expanded. And just a little bit. <laughs> uh, yeah. These guys took the whole region by storm. Pretty much. <laughs> Which and is great. I mean, it was... So this was another really interesting... Um, an interesting time because this was really about unification. This is this is where um, these little mini principalities. No, we're not doing this anymore. Let's bring the whole country together. Yeah. Let's be a unified Nepal area. Um, if only they could just settle and do that now. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Again, foreshadowing, but still, right. it's frustrating. It just is, frustrating. Yeah. Um, you think it's frustrating for us, <laughs> yeah, right? Uh, you know, the it's people probably worse for the people who country. live there. Yes, of course, yes, I know. Yeah. But I'm just saying, if you can hear my frustration, yeah. imagine theirs. Yeah. So the Gorka kingdoms established, and they um start um expanding. So 1606, Ram Shah, the Gorka um kingdom reigns, and they um kind of have their first expansion. This goes out to 1633. Um, and it's they basically were conquering various states and forging alliances with others. So they were kind of it's like Survivor. The, exactly, that's exactly what I was thinking. They it's were totally Survivor of the Himalayas. Yes. <laughs> so they were kind of um, taken taken like this like slow storm, and then in 1743, uh, Prithvi Narayan Shah ascends to the throne. And he has basically he basically de dedicated himself at an early age to the conquest of the Kathmandu Valley. That was his intention. Yeah. And I mean, there was also some other really, you know, wise political and economic decisions made around this time. Mm -hmm. uh, I believe that Nepal also gained the right to mint Tibetan coins. Right. So when you're working yeah. with Tibetan silver, you're only, you know, further enriching the, the kingdom's coffers and, and doing yeah. a lot to stabilize economically mm -hmm. and now you're not just 
a trade in passing through on the way to trade routes, you are in fact now yes a, a destination. Yes, and you're and you're contributing to the economy yeah. of another country. And keep that in mind because that's going to come into play in a second. Mm. <laughs> a lot of foreshadowing. Mm. Um, but also, kind of around this time, um, the British East India Company was obviously getting a lot of traction in this area. It's the 1700s. That's <sighs> we, we the East India do... Company just owned half the world we need to do a half we, we need to do an episode uh, yeah on the east india company yeah. and we've touched on it a little bit when brian and i uh did our our uh coffee and tea beverage of criminals uh-huh. uh episode and we talked a lot about their shenanigans in india and all the misery they've caused a lot of people there. oh i mean well don't let's not get me started on, i'm just saying let's not get me started on colonialism right now i'm just saying <laughs> i think our episode our, our listeners would appreciate an episode on said topic i'm speaking so. for our listeners right okay, now that's all great. i'm doing great Thank you, Sarah. Don't thank, be so aggressive. Thank you, Eric. I'm just, just saying. Just simmer down now. I tend to get fired up about colonialism. I know you do. That's why I said it. It makes for good radio. Yeah. Yeah. My face is turning. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, so uh, around 1764, the East India Company gained control of Bengal. And around this time, um, Prithvi Narayan actually was dismissing European missionaries from the country because he was really focused on creating a national identity and trying to um, – trying to keep everybody together and also recognize he also recognized the threat of the british raj in india yeah and so he kind of he was seeing what's going on outside of this and he's like we really need to unify and and figure out how to how to be a strong kingdom on our own and so he was um he was actually able to unify nepal and later the nepali forces were actually able to fight against the british colonial forces and prevent col- the colonization of nepal um, and you know who you can thank for that? Mm. Gurkhas. Yep. Not Gherkins. Right. Not to be confused with pickles. Nope. No, 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 no. Gurkha soldiers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, these these kings of this time who were from the Gurkha region, right, they are well known for their aggression and for their, their ability to consolidate their power by force. Yeah. And their people from this region were, were well known for that as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's no big surprise that the the Gurkha kind of rose to the ranks uh, of being those those elite soldiers and gained a huge reputation with the British. So much so that after hostilities ceased, the British immediately wanted to take advantage of these guys and started enlisting them in uh, in the Indian Army. Mm-hmm. In the, excuse me, in the, in the British Army. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that that comes into play later too. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, so it's very interesting because. It, it, with Prithvi Narayan, his his whole idea, um, again, he wanted to create a true nationalist. He had this outlook that was really about keeping the country together. And so he he kept the closed door policy with regard to the British. And, you know, he had this he had this imagery, a yam between two boulders. And this. Hmm. Yeah. But this is what basically kind of, kind of what it looks like. Yeah. yeah and it. It basically formed the principal guideline of what the country's foreign policy was, <laughs> you know, this this image of this is where we are and we've got these two giant beasts on either side of us. So let's let's be strong and maintain maintain our shape in this area. You know what what else this does? Mm. It also contributes to our episode title. And, and, and you know, sometimes <laughs> I say this and then we don't do it. We end up doing something different. Sean. A yam between two boulders is the episode title. Okay, it it has been decreed, and it may very well be one of the greatest episode titles <laughs> ever we have ever had on this yeah. show. Yeah, it's pretty good. 
That was fantastic. Please continue. So unfortunately, though, um, Prithvi passed away um, at the age of 52 in 1775. And this is before he could really effectively organize the administration for the country. Yeah, it was pretty unexpected. Yeah. So he was succeeded by his son, Pratap Singh Shah. And um, they continued the unification uh, campaign also with his younger son, uh, Bahadur Shah. And Pratap Singh Shah actually only died after two years in power, and it left kind of a a huge vacuum Mm. um, that was really unfilled for a long time. And it was really kind of debilitating to to the Nepalese state as they were trying to really get their footing. Right. And so um, Pratap Singh Shah's successor was his son, Rana, who was only two and a half (laughs) when he took over. And the acting regent um, was the queen... Oh, God. Rajendra Lakshmi. <laughs> that sounds good to me. Thank you. Go with it. And then followed by Bahadur Shah, and uh, who's the second son of Prithvi Narayan. And so they were basically these two regents that were kind of um, overseeing everything. And the court life in the kingdom was basically consumed by their rivalry. Um, and it was like you were either aligning with the queen or with the second son of the you know deceased king. Yeah. And... It was just, it was just kind of a mess. So, in other words, point. it will never be made into an ABC family movie. Probably not. Okay. Probably not. And in 1794, when the king actually became of age, um, and then in 1797, when he actually began to exercise power on his own, so it took, it was taken a while for all this stuff to happen. Um, but Rana was, he had spent his life in luxury and really what didn't know what he was doing. And so um, he and he became infatuated with this widow and that they had an illegitimate son that he was trying to put in, in the throne. Okay, so, so not ABC Family. I mean. But maybe like TNT. Uh, I mean, we're talking practically. HBO? Can we, do, can, we, can we go HBO with this? I think we could probably go E-Network with this. <laughs> E-Network reality show. Wow. <laughs> I had such high hopes for it. Never mind. I know. I know. It started to sound really good. I know. Um, and so... He basically just like had so much irrational behavior that um, a lot of the leading citizens ended up demanding that he abdicate the throne. Wow! And so he was thro- he was forced to th- turn the throne over to his son Gervin Yuda Shah, who was only one and a half, <laughs> and he retired. <laughs> <laughs> so, and while this is going on, <laughs> it's the beginning of the Sino-Nepalese War. Yay. Yeah, because we decided, or we, Nepal, decided that... <laughs> we're honorary. We're, we're Nepalese Nip- right now. Nepalese, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, Nepal decided that they wanted to invade Tibet. They were having some issues. Tibet was starting to cause some stirrings of potential fighting back because of bad alloy and those minted coins that we were giving them. Somebody decided that they were going to not do full silver, but they were going to do um, like a mix of copper and they and the Tibetans found out and got really annoyed because now their currency was all mixed value. And so we so Nepal basically heard all these stirrings, all these stirrings about people who were wanting to cause a fight. And they're like, well, let's just invade them. (laughs) As one does. I mean, yep. Yep. But um and while they had some some initial success in subduing the Tibetans, um, who were under the the Qing dynasty at this point, um, the 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 war escalated enough to get the Qing imperial force involved, 
Um, and so they were driven out <laughs> from yeah. all the occupied territories. And then we start having some contracting yeah. going on. Yeah, again. yeah. And they were forced to sign a peace treaty in 1792. So that basically halted. Um, Very one-sided peace treaty. Yeah. So that halted Nepalese expansion. Um, thanks to the Chinese. <laughs> and and the yam goes back. And the yam gets a little bit smaller. Into its shape. Starts to shrivel up a little bit. Yes. 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 Um. And this is where we get into another very interesting political story. They're the politics in Nepal. It's just bear with us, folks. It's a little. It's a little nuts. Yeah. Um, it's a little rough at times. We 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 might need to. Cut yeah. out some of the fat. Yeah, I'm looking. I'm looking at the time already. I'm like, good lord, this is going to take forever. So, <laughs> um, in 1806, um, Bimson Thapa uh, becomes prime minister, and he was the prime minister for 31 years under six different Nepali kings. Yeah. Um, he bef- he befriended the crown prince at one point at an early age. Served as personal secretary and his um, bodyguard, and then he became. Um, then when he became the pr- the king. He appointed him as the prime minister. And um, Bimson was basically going out and trying to campaign South Asian co- uh, countries to to unite in opposition to the increasing um, powerful East India Company. Yeah. But he wasn't able to get, get so much support. And so this lack of unity is actually kind of what kind of affect the uh, Anglo-Nepalese war in the long run. Um, but this was that was the thing that he was focusing on when he was trying to go out and um, enact some foreign policy and try and get some people on their side. At the same time, when he was kind of coming into power, he was spending a lot of time neutralizing anybody who was going to challenge his authority. Um, he put the senior queen behind bars. He plucked out the eyes of well-known members of the Shaw family, confiscated their property, and blinded the nephew of Prithvi Narayan Shah, um, who was at the time 10 years old, uh, by pouring poisoned milk in his eyes. So kind of a dick. Yeah. However, things change. And now he's, uh, from what I hear, kind of regarded as a national hero uh, because of other things that he did. <laughs> So, yeah. So we're just going to skip over the poison milk. Yeah, yeah. Well, and he also he also made a play where he um, married his niece into the royal family so that when the king died and she was left, mm-hmm. his his position was him. was yeah. held tight. Yeah. So, um and well, his niece at the time was 16 years old. Very clever yeah. on his part. I mean, it makes sense. Oh, sure, sure, and, but I mean, you know, you, you see these folks who who are in a position of power, who are bored into such chaos, uh, they have to kind of make moves like this in order to kind of survive. So it's mm-hmm. easy for us to judge it from this time, looking back on it. But yeah. you know, to be totally honest, I mean, is it really, I mean, can we really pin too much on him? I mean... Well, so what, but the good things that he did do, because, um, you know, this is during his, you know, part of his reign as prime minister is during the Anglo-Nepalese War... From 1814 to 1816, we'll get into a little bit more detail, but um, it's during this time that he's um, brought about several military, judicial, social, and economic reforms. Um, The army was modernized to be more of a European style, so they could at least compete a little. Um, He arranged facilities um, for guns and explosives, so kind of these armories. 
And he gave the Army of Nepal more salary and training. So it sounds like he had a lot of really great ideas. He was just kind of being a little bit of a dick to hold on yeah, to, to it get so the that he power. could have those great yeah. ideas be manifested and actually exactly. turn into something. Exactly. Um, and also, All right. Well, okay. I can kind of see why they give him a little bit There were also some really bad social practices that were abolished. And um, un- unused land was kind of bought and kind of turned into like kind of cultivated for better purposes. Um, and, the, and he updated the administration of what was going on. So – yeah. <laughs> all right. All right. All so right. So he had some good things. He had a lot of bad things, but he had some good things. Um, but let's I mean, know. My God, you know, I've listened to Celine Dion before. And are you just gonna, are you going to hold that against me and, and judge me? <laughs> hey, don't hate on Celine. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let's but let's talk about the Anglo-Nepalese War now. So um, this is what really establishes Nepal's current boundaries um, yeah. was was this war. Um, it was or also known as the Gorkha War, because they were the ones who were fighting back Ooh. hard. Um, and it was between Nepal and the East India Company as a result of border disputes um, and the ambitious expansionism from both belligerent parties is the note that I have right here. Mm. I love that. <laughs> and it ended in 1816, um, which ceded around a third of Nepal's territory to the British. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the British were the were the invading forces in this one, while the Nepalese were trying to maintain a defensive position. Um, this was actually the most expensive war waged during the governorship of Lord Moira, um, who was the governor general of India at the time. Wow! Yeah, so this was this was a big deal. They were really trying to get their hands on Nepal because it's strategically it's in a great location. It's a tasty yam. Yeah, it is a tasty, tasty yam. <laughs> Um, but the Nepalese, like, definitely were able to inflict some heavy losses on the to the British Army on on several fronts. Um, I mean, the, the Gurkha warriors have been notorious for a very long time as being without fear. Yeah, uh, I, I can't remember who it was, but there's a there's a, a very famous quote that says that uh, a man who with is, who is without fear is either insane or a Gurkha. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I like it. So. Eventually, you know, the they just couldn't stand to the superior weapons and of, you know, the larger army <laughs> that the British had. And so they evacuated the areas and um when they signed the treaty, what was uh, what was given away um as far as land, um they took away a large chunk of the of the terrain from Nepal and the rivers Makali, sorry, Mahakali and Meki. Mm. Uh, and they basically kind of fixed the uh, western and eastern boundaries. Got it. So, um, and at the time, it was King Gurvana Yuda Bikram Shah, uh, who was on the throne of uh, of Nepal at the time. And this is when Bimson Thapa was kind of wielding the enormous power as prime minister. But eventually, in 1837, Bimson Thapa falls. Mm. And... It was when his niece, the queen, um, passed away, and she was his strongest supporter. Um, it basically weakened his hold, and there were a lot of conspiracies and kind of like in interkingdom rivals and whatnot happening. Um, people were blaming him for a death of one of the high um, the high leading family members, and um, he was imprisoned and he committed suicide in eighteen thirty nine. So. And here we go into yet another unstable period <laughs> in Nepal's um, politics. And this is where the Ranas come in. 
1846, uh, Nepal falls under this way of these hereditary chief ministers known as um, Ranas. Yeah. And they basically dominate the monarchy and completely cut off the country from the outside world. They do. I mean, they, they do some good things, too. Sure. You know, they they um, they abolish the, the, the old tradition of women throwing their, their you know, widowed bodies onto their funeral pyre of their dead husband really good things suicide all good things that was taken away yep that was good (laughs) uh about sixty thousand slaves were released from bondage during this time yes uh and schools and colleges were established in Kathmandu for the first time so yes isolationism in my opinion is never a good idea we've Mm -hmm. seen what it has done to other countries in the nearby region and hasn't always had a positive effect yeah Uh, both tibet and china have gone through their isolation period isolation periods as well and it's been uh not a good thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it sure is doing great for North Korea right now. They're they're loving it there. But there were some positives of the time. Well, I mean, when they came into power, though, they came into power with a massacre. There's that. So that wasn't great. Uh, but Jung Bahadur, um, he had organized with the Queen's consent um, for his soldiers to massacre uh, several hundred of the most important men in the kingdom, noblemen, soldiers, courtiers. Um, they were assembled in the courtyard and um, and killed. And then he exiled 6,000 members of their families to prevent any revenge attacks. Smart move. <laughs> so kind of a, you know what? We feel really bad yeah. about how we did this. So slaves, be free. Yep. We're cool, right? Everyone, yep, we're good? All right. Excellent. Yep. Continue ruling. And Jung Bahadur um, took the title of prime minister and changed his name to Rana because it was very prestigious. Mm. Very prestigious title. And he later extended his title to Maharaja um, and decreed it hereditary. So that was the other thing. He gave a royal decree in 1856 that gave absolute power to the prime minister and his family and reduced the Shah monarch to just a figurehead. Yeah. Um. And also, the, the, all the prime minister posi- and other government posi- positions were all hereditary. Mm. So nobody else could get in there. It was just family only. So, not great. But again, the whole, you know, <laughs> funeral priors. We don't have people throwing themselves yeah, anymore. That's good, yeah. too. So, sure. I, I kind of feel like I keep having to defend certain parts of this history because it's it's so depressing at certain points. And I just... I but want there, were, there to be but, happy periods. Exactly, exactly. But there were other good things going on. So I'm really glad that you're the optimist in this, in this <laughs> I'm one, too. so hard. I know, because the politics are a mess, but culturally, yeah. they are developing. Yeah. Um, you know, around 1889, this is when modernization came in. So yeah. um, the there was an opening of a hospital, the Burr Hospital, um, which was Nepal's first, um, and the first piped water system. And there was electricity limited but there was electricity <laughs> there still is limited electricity <laughs> and um and the construction of the huge singa durbar palace yeah so so yes a lot of development these are all good things but yeah other stuff <laughs> i mean yeah other stuff really brings us into the 20th century right i mean that kind of summarizes a lot of what was going on yeah uh it's important to note though as we do kind of make this transition into this period of time that Nepal provided a lot of support to the British army during both the First and Second World Absolutely. Wars. You combine those wars together, you have over 300,000 people um, fighting it within the British Commonwealth mm-hmm. and, and supporting uh, supporting their, their efforts to, uh, to win those wars. Yeah. Uh, gaining 13 Victoria Crosses in the process. Yeah. 
And uh, that's, that's you know, not all of them were, were Gurkhas either. I mean, we the Gurkhas get really, you know. Yeah, they get a lot of credit. They, they get a lot of credit, get played up a lot. But these were also common yes. folks who, who volunteered and, and were brought in and they served well. Yes. Um, there was also the... Uh, Indian Rail Railway came into play here um, in the early 1900s, um, right at the Nepali border, which helped in the transportation of of you know goods and kind of trading helped um, enhance a lot of that. But it kind of took away from the caravan trade that was already happening there. That was really useful um, for Nepali grain and rice trading yeah. for Tibetan salt. There's about 59 kilometers of railways in Nepal. Mm-hmm. Uh, to this day. Yeah. And it's an important way of, of getting around in this country that is just so difficult to move around. Yeah. Well, you know, you kind of got giant mountains in the way. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, and there was another kind of transborder, you know, setback when the British um, opened up a more direct trade route with Tibet through um, the Sikkim Chumbi Valley. And, uh, and so that kind of basically... Well, and then China, then China closed their border to local trade in 1966. But <laughs> so it was kind of a little rough for for Nepal <laughs> at this point because um, some of their their more useful trades was you know being somewhat bypassed. Yeah. So 1923, there is a treaty with Britain which affirms Nepal's sovereignty. They are officially, officially, officially on their own, not assisted by the British. At this point, at all, they are their own independent country. Um, and One then of in, many that would come out of the aftermath aftermath of the First World War. Yeah, yeah. And in 1930, the Kingdom of Gorkha was renamed the Kingdom of Nepal, um, and kind of gave a growing sense of national consciousness, which is great. And then in 1935, they established their first political party. So things are looking up, right? We're like, <laughs> right? Sure, they things are. are. Things are. Doing well. Nothing can possibly go wrong at this point. <laughs> um, there's in 1947, the Nepali uh, National Congress was established through a merger of former um, All India Nepali National Congress with the Nepali Society of Banaras and uh, Gorkha Congress of Calcutta. That's a lot of words. It sure is. Basically, two different congresses formed one national congress. Um, and then um, in 1948, Prime Minister Padma Shamsher Rana announces the first constitution of Nepal, then he resigns, and then his replacement, Mohan Shamsher Rana, represses any opposition against him. (laughs) (laughs) And thence, in 1950, some anti-Rana forces from India kind of aligned with the the monarch, and they try to, they basically overthrow the Ranas, (laughs) and they overthrow the prime ministers, and the sovereignty of the crown was restored in 1951. Um, basically at this, and King Tribhuvan was, um, in power at this time, 1950, and he kind of basically went to an Indian embassy, hid out, he claimed political immunity and was taken to India. And then the, um, Nepali Congress party basically just took, took most of Tarai by force and then took it all from the Ranas and established their own provincial government that ruled from a border town. And then India exerted all this influence and what yep, a mess. and then just took it all back over for the king to be in charge. So li- little known fact, uh, George R.R. R. Martin. 
he, wrote Nepal's history. He did. Uh, just replace Westeros yeah. with Nepal. I mean, that's really what it feels like. It's like, oh, cool. Now we have a Congress. Amazing. We have some prime ministers who, again, it's still hereditary, so we don't really like them that much. But, oh, one of them established a constitution. Awesome. But they're still in power and we don't like it. So let's just take over and overthrow the whole government and let's make the king the only person in charge again. It's kind of like it's just prime minister versus king fighting yeah. back and forth. And these populations are having to suffer with this. It's a it's a it's, lot. It's totally the hand of the king. Yeah. And the king. This is Game of Thrones. It is Game of Thrones. Just yep. replace uh, while you're at it. Replace dragon with yak. <laughs> the mother of yaks. <laughs> 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 I am the mother of yaks. <laughs> oh, that'd be amazing. It is known, Khaleesi. It is known. <laughs> Daenerys Shaw. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, so in 1952, a new king ascends to the throne, uh, Mahendra, Mahendra Beer Bikram Shah Dev. Um, in 1953, that Sir Edmund Hillary climbed the mountain. <laughs> And he had a little bit of help, did he? He not? did, he did. He had help with the Sherpa. Yeah, Tenzing Norgay, who who I just I said Norgay with like a like his uh, Norwegian accent. You did Forgive a little me. bit, Norgay. Yeah, Nor, yeah. Tor Tenzing Norgay, who pretty much dragged him up the mountain and and guaranteed his survival. Yes, I mean, not not to discredit Sir Edmund Hillary, uh, amazing mountain mountaineer, but so many mountaineers rely on their local Sherpa. To keep them alive. Yep. Uh, these folks, they know these mountains in and out. It is their heart. It is their soul. It is their home. And it's the, uh, it's, it, you got to give credit where credit's due. And I did. You did a great job. Thanks. And then in 1955, Nepal joined uh, the UN. Um, and then in 59, a multi-party constitution was adopted. And the first general elections in Nepal um, bring to power the Nepali Congress Party with BP Koirala? Koirala. Yes. Yeah, let's say that. Koirala as prime minister. And they and they, the Nepali Congress Party had a very clear victory. Um, but in late 1960, the king decided that the government wasn't to his taste after all, and he had the cabinet arrested and swapped his ceremonial role for a real control. Mm. So again. And that's so interesting to see that that kind of shift, because yeah. so often do the monarchs get essentially put into the role of the constitutional monarch and just stay there and be yeah. happy that they have the wealth and limited influence that they have. Right. But this guy says, uh uh. He's like, no, no, no. Not I, satisfied. Yeah, I want to take it back over again. And he suspends parliament and the constitution and all party politics. And then in 1962, there's a new constitution again. Again. Um, that provides for a non party system of councils known as the Panchayat, under which the king exercises sole power. Yeah. And then the first elections to Rastra Panchayat are held in 1963. Then in 1972, that king, King Mahendra, who, you know, did all that, was succeeded by Birendra, his son, who at the time is 27 and was British educated. Um, and subsequently, Nepal's hippie community was totally booted from the country. They got kicked out because they tightened up some visa laws 
And basically, there was just a lot of discontent going on amongst the people. Um, there was a really, really slow rate of development and a lot of corru corruption in the government, obviously. And the cost of living was going up. And there, all of a sudden, in 1979, there were just violent riots happening. Um, and then King Burendra announced the referendum to choose between the Panchayat system and one that would permit political parties to operate. And it was <laughs> it was 55% in favor of the Panchayat system. And democracy was actually outvoted, despite the fact like that the, people they use are... used democracy to outvote democracy. Yeah, yeah. Despite all, all of what was going on in that... It's, it's weird, right? I'm just so confused. I'd, can you imagine? <laughs> I'm not confused with what you're saying. I, I follow you. I understand. Yeah. I'm just confused as to why this is happening. I don't know. I don't know. But there was um, strict censorship was enforced. There were mass arrests, torture, beatings of activists. Um, and it was just a mess from about 1960 throughout the 80s. Yeah. And um, the... Uh, but as we jump into the 90s... Well, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, the Nepali Congress Party was like beginning like a full-blown civil disobedience campaign right um fighting for fighting for the restoration it was and how close are we to that point now well uh in 86 the new elections were boycotted <laughs> so i mean it's just a lot of it's a lot of work until about uh 1990 so we were about five years away when they were it, so the civil disobedience worked um, but at the same time, we're also having like an insane amount of population growth going on in this area too. Um, in Nepal's population grew from 8.4 million in 1954 to 26 million in 2004. Wow. Huge, huge population explosion. Um, and so the problem- That's like a Brickmont family proportions. That's <laughs> right? huge. Right. And so part of the problem with this is that- you know, they were trying – so during this time, they're trying to develop the country, still a lot of money being, you know, kind of corrupted and going missing. But they're trying to pump money into schools and roads and all this other stuff. But because they're having a huge population growth, it's not balancing out. Yeah. And that's giving people even more cause to be restless because now there's so many of them and their their surroundings, their environment isn't living up to the needs but the, they yeah. can't catch up, so it's... And it's interesting, because of yeah. these 26 million people in Nepal, you've got only about 750,000 of them actually living in Kathmandu. Yeah. You know, compared to a place like San Jose, which has got a million right. in, in this large city, and you mm -hmm. you know places like Mexico City that have like 20 million people yeah. living in them, or Beijing, uh, you have this disproportionate rural area completely and totally inundated with with people yeah so a lot of people were actually moving to Tarai, and a lot of people were just going and hopping the border and working in india yeah because they had they have a pretty open border so they were able to go back and forth but it's it's just crazy and so you know they basically are kind of having this you know in 1989 there's a lot of communist states in europe and and china and and tiananmen square as we know there was a lot of um communist states falling apart and yeah. pro-democracy demonstrations. Um, so Nepali opposition parties are forming a coalition to fight for a multi-party democracy with the king as a constitutional head, and that's it. Um, and it was called the People's Movement. 
And uh, basically in 1990, there was enough agitation um, coordinated by the Nepali Congress Party, the NCP, and a bunch of leftist groups and street protests everywhere um, that were suppressed by security forces, resulting in deaths, mass arrests. Um, but King Birendra eventually bows to pressure and agrees to the new democratic constitution. But it took a lot. It took a big, big, big old booty because um, I can't say that word. Um, <laughs> Which has never stopped you before, actually. I know. I usually just bleep you, but you're doing well. I'm trying to have an I, episode I, that's bleep free. Hold on. I just, had to, I just had to reflect on that for a minute. Yeah. We haven't had to bleep you once. I know. I know. You know who's most happy about that? Sean. No. Who? Aunt Teresa. Oh, yeah. You're welcome, Aunt Teresa. <laughs> <laughs> um, so on April 9th, uh, King Berendra announced that he was lifting the ban on political parties. And um, on, a on April 16th, he asked the opposition to lead an interim government. And he accepted the role of a constitutional monarch. And Nepal was officially a democracy. Yay. Huzzah. Um, Finally. Yeah. The Nepali Congress Party won the first democratic elections. There's a new prime minister. Um, and things are great now, right? Well, right. This is this is the no. pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, right? No, because in '94 the new prime minister's government was defeated. No confidence motion. God damn it! <laughs> and new elections were led to form a communist government. <laughs> You're killing me, Smalls. Uh, you know, I'm just saying. Um, <laughs> They, they called for a midterm election. No party won a clear mandate and a coalition was formed between um, the uh, the communist party there. And the Maoists, right? Not the Maoists. No. They were they were called something else um, that I don't have. But they were Maoists, I believe. Yes. Well, the, the Maoists the... became a they they elevated to become the Maoists yeah. um, and a third major party. Um the old panchayats actually and they all won the support in the poly congress and it was one of the few times in the world that a communist government has come to power by popular vote wow yeah so but it didn't last very long because then in 95 the communist government was dissolved yeah <laughs> <laughs> well it's like god you, you're doing it right at the time that communism is essentially falling yeah. apart in yeah. the world i know they're like, but we can do it, right? Right? No. Well, that didn't even last a year. And I want, I want to point out now, they've already gone through three governments since, like, in the 90s, and it's only 1995. Yeah. <laughs> this is crazy. Um, so then the radical leftist group, the, the Maoists, uh, otherwise known as the Nepal Communist Party, uh, began an insurrection in rural areas that were basically looking to um, abolish the monarch and establish a people's republic. And this is a, this is a civil war that would last for a decade. Yeah. And it was, they were attacking military and the military was attacking back. And um, both sides got called out by Amnesty International for um, human rights abuses, including executions, abductions, torture, and child conscription. Jesus. Um, by 2005, um, nearly 13,000 people, including many civilians, had been killed in the insurgency. Um, and more than half of them um, since the army joined the struggle in 2001. So it's a lot. It, it got really – what started off as just kind of a quiet insurgency then blew up in the 2000s. Yeah. Um, and then – God, another prime minister in 97 loses a no-confidence vote, and there's even more instability. 
And um, in 2000, GP Koirala returns as prime minister, heading the ninth government in 10 years. That's a mess. That is a freaking mess. Then in 2001, King uh, Berendra and his queen and about uh, seven other, you know, people of the royal family were murdered um, by the crown prince who went in and he shot them all and then shot himself. And it was a huge shock for a lot of people because, you know, Berendra, mind you, was king kind of since the 60s there's a since the 60s so there was a lot or sorry 70s since 72 so there was a lot of turmoil during that time but he was still kind of a guiding force and was still there for his people during this time i mean this is this is kind of paramount to prince charles going and and murdering the queen and several members of the royal family yeah in england yeah absolutely and the maoists had had some kind of some truces here and there um, but they'd never lasted very long, just a full-blown campaign of violence. And there was a state of emergency declared for, uh, after more than a hundred people were killed in four days of violence. And this is again, all in 2001. Yeah. Um, in 2002, the parliament was dissolved and then there's another, um, <laughs> there was, cause there was political confrontation over extending the state of emergency. Um, so the, the state of emergency was renewed (laughs) (laughs) and, um, elections were put off and And folks were laughing just because not, not because we find this funny, because because it's, it's it's so ridiculous. It's so, yeah. You can't help but just, just to cope with it all. Yeah. I mean, cause the new King then dismissed the prime minister. They got a new one. It's just crazy during this time. And even then, okay, so in 2004, yay for Nepal, they got entry into the World Trade Organization, and it created uh, the Regional South Asian Free Trade Agreement, and it offered some advances for the country, but really, Nepal, still to this day, is super dependent on foreign aid. Yeah. Um, it, foreign aid makes up 25% of the state budget, and over two-thirds of Nepal's total development budget. So, the, you know, they're... They're hurting. And then they got dealt another blow with these earthquakes. Yeah. Um, right when things started to seem like they were looking up a little bit. Yeah. Well, and the aid industry has also come under some criticism for failing to generate the um, economic and social development that had been expected. Um, but I think they're doing – there are a lot of people who are doing reevaluation, not just in Nepal, but in several countries where foreign aid is really dependent um, on doing smaller-scale community cooperation microfinancing. Yeah. Um. Which, you know, I, I there's I just listened to a really interesting TED talk on microfinancing, too. It was very, very interesting. Hmm. <laughs> um, but talking in the context of Africa. So, um, you know, again, there's a, a prime minister comes in and then leaves. So that prime minister that was, um, you know, just brought in in 2002 was dismissed in 2005 and um in 2005, the king lifts the state of emergency because of um, some international pressure. And he basically, you know, where he intended to assume some direct power and just defeat the Maoist rebels, um, they actually, the rebels and the main opposition parties agree on a program to instore, um, to restore democracy. And then in 2006, uh, the king reinstates parliament. The Maoists call for a three-month ceasefire, which is awesome. And then Parliament votes unanimously to curtail the king's political powers. 
Yeah. And the government and the Maoist rebels begin peace talks for the first time in nearly three years at this point. Um, so they sign a peace accord, declare a formal end to the 10-year rebel insurgency. And the rebels are actually invited to join a transitional government and their weapons were placed under UN supervision. Um, this is all in 2006, not that long ago. No. So there's a temporary constitution and the Maoists are in the inter uh, interim government, um, which brings them to the political mainstream, which is kind of nuts considering what they did, <laughs> you know, and a lot of all that turmoil. Oh my God. Yeah. And yeah. Voted into those seats mm -hmm. of power is, is, yeah. I mean, it shows a level of acceptance. Yeah. Which is impressive. Um, so then the Maoists, even though they're in the interim government, they actually decide to quit in 2007, uh, because they wanted to push for a demand for the monarchy to be gone. Just no monarchy, period. Um, so it, it postpones the um, the constituent assembly elections for that year. And then in 2007, Parliament approved the abolition of the monarchy as part of the peace deal with the Maoists, who then agreed to rejoin. So it took all of that. <laughs> it took all of that. That's all? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And Nepal finally became a republic in 2008. And I mean, there's there's still still stuff going on. It's still a little unstable. They're still trying to get their footing. And then in 2015, then that's where they get hit with bam earthquakes. Two back to back devastating yep. earthquakes. Yep. Um, April 25th, a 7.8 earthquake struck Nepal, killing at least uh, about actually 8,500 people, um, injuring thousands, and leaving an estimated 2.5 million people homeless. And then on uh, May 12th, uh, a 7.3 earthquake killed 158, and nearly 17,000 were just injured between the two. So, and it's really rough. People there are still struggling. Um, you know, they're having landslides and all this other stuff going on. Uh, actually, a lot of people are complaining about earthquake hangover, mm. where they still feel like the ground is moving sometimes. Yeah. And it's a, it's, an inner ear reaction to the aftershocks because there have been 240 aftershocks since April 25th. That's incredible. That's insane. So, you know, I, I was reading this one article from a New York times journalist who, you know, is living in the area. And she said that she um, deals with it by placing a bowl of water near her laptop. So she has a frame of reference because, because if she turns over in bed, she'll think that the earth is moving God. again. You know, it's, what torture yeah. to live in that. Yeah. And the, honestly, the best thing that, that we can do to help them, because honestly, you know, I just said how dependent they were on foreign aid, you know, because obviously their government has not been able to, I don't mean to downplay anything, but clearly, historically, this government has not been able to keep their S together. And so really providing any, su any support that you can, if there's anything you can send, whether it's money or blankets, you know, or, blankets or, or stuff. And the biggest thing is if you have the capacity and the wherewithal to travel, travel to Nepal as soon as monsoon season is over because they highly rely on tourist trade too. Right. And these people need to be working. Yeah. And yeah. they need to rebuild. And they Ugh. will rebuild, but let's not leave them like Haiti who's still struggling, you know? That's right. So it's a, it's a really tough situation. But that's Nepal's history in a nutshell. Sarah? <laughs> I mean, ladies and gentlemen, Sarah's exhausted. We just covered um, centuries of Nepalese history. <laughs> 
and in an hour, 20 minutes or so. <laughs> well, I, you know, I really, I, I, uh, I want to thank you because, Whew. um, you know, I did a lot of research on the past couple of episodes yeah. and, uh, I haven't had a whole lot of time with everything I've been working on lately. You know, what I got on my plate and you just got to say it on air, knock this out of the park. I tried. Absolutely phenomenal. I tried. And what an incredible history. What an incredible people. And it's a still a developing history. I mean, this is this yeah. is obviously history is going on around us all the time. We see that. But, yeah. you know, I, I have high hopes. I really want to see this country succeed. Yeah. I really want democracy to flourish. I want people to, to be okay here because mm-hmm. um, there's a lot of important history and it deserves to be preserved. And yeah. we've seen what happens when uh, when political institutions fall into disarray and we see the the impact that it has culturally and, mm-hmm. and when it has on the historical, all those amazing world heritage monuments that are there in that country, uh, we, we have to protect that. We have to protect this incredible yes. history. So, yeah. so like, like Sarah said, ladies and gentlemen, send thoughts, send money, send blankets, send whatever you can. Yeah. In um, fact, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and just ask you guys this episode. I think I, I've asked it before, but, you know, this time I ask you if you're if you're interested in, in donating your money to somebody, you know, I know we usually ask donate your money to us, go to audible.com, whatever, all that stuff, buy don't, a shirt. Don't don't, don't do don't it. Don't do it. We this don't, time you get a pass. We don't need it that much. Nepal really needs it. Yeah. There's a lot of families there that have already gone through so much. So let's yeah. let's help them. And let's face it, we got Aunt Teresa taking care of us anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Aunt Teresa is, is a is a Good, good lady. Yeah, yeah. She sends us <laughs> cookies and tartises and all sorts of stuff. So yes. um, we're, we're fine. Yep. But Nepal's not, so help yep. them out. Uh, I know we're, we're a little short on time. We're going a little over on this episode. Yes. But uh, we do have a little bit of listener feedback. This week in listener feedback. Uh, this one comes from Joshua. Uh, the subject is spacey stuff. Hey, nerds, just wanted to say thanks for the last two NOH episodes on space probes and it has inspired me to learn more about the universe I live in. Eric, I will definitely be joining your revolution. Yes. <laughs> Great. He says Pluto should be an honorary planet, and I think with enough people we can make that happen. Anyway, have a great week. Sincerely, Joshua. Joshua, thank you. Uh, when the revolution comes, uh, I will be recruiting you. Uh, you and your family will be spared. Uh, which is always good. And uh, we will bring Pluto back into its rightful position. It will happen. I vow this. All right. (laughs) Okay, so this next one, we'll do this really fast, is from Ben. Um, Subject, Austria or Australia? Uh, Good day, nerds. First time comment from a relatively new listener. Discovered your podcast on OH this year. Um, and have slowly been making my way through the back catalog. Thank you. I must commend you on your enthusiasm for the topic and the real chemistry you both have. It makes for a really uh, entertaining listen. Uh, just wait till you get to me, bud. <laughs> it gets even better. <laughs> um, he really enjoys like the D.B. Cooper episode and and those things. Um, and he finds that he's trying to join in the conversation. Yes, but not really, though. Or that's not right. Um he recently finished our mar- the marathon on three-parter on the First World War, which is a case in point. Uh, while the broad story you told was essentially correct, you did make some factual errors, which, while not major, did find me trying to correct you uh, to both the amusement uh, of people around me. <laughs> um, 
You, uh, one, you stated that using mines against trenches was a new technique when, in fact, it was as old as siege warfare itself. In trench warfare, warfare it was notably used by General Burnside in uh, Civil War um, in the trenches of Petersburg. Number I, I will say, uh-huh. while that is absolutely 100% accurate and very true, mm-hmm. uh, I think the point I was trying to get across was to the to the scale. Okay that had been seen in the First World War, we had not really seen that before. So I was talking more, not so much about the tactic, but about the the actual scale itself. Okay. Just to clarify. Number two, you stated that no one in the Austro-Hungarian Empire cared about the killing of the Archduke Franz Ferdinand. That was a bit of hyperbole. If you were a Carpathian goat herder, that might be true. But if you were an ethnic German in the heart of the empire, you would have been out for blood. I will... Acknowledge your comment. Okay. And I will say that uh, in general, there didn't seem to be a whole lot of outcry, Mm -hmm. but certainly, obviously, I wasn't speaking for every single person in that country. Obviously, there were many who were going to take offense. Yeah. uh, And it was going to be used uh, later to, to, of course, elevate things to its its. Yes. Number yes, three. Yes. I will acknowledge it, though. Number three, you made it sound like Tsar Nicholas was instrumental in Rasputin's death when he wasn't the nobles who resented his influence in the court were the ones who did who were the ones who did for him. Rasputin indirectly influenced the Tsar by having uh, such power over the Tsarina, who in turn influenced the Tsar. The Tsar had no involvement and, in fact, was distraught because Rasputin supposedly could alleviate the effects of the Tsar... whatever... I will, I will place that blame on Brian because he is not here to defend himself. Okay. And last, uh, and worst mistake, in his opinion, was when Eric was listing off the nations which participated in the war. Correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, but the first name in the list of allies sounded like Austria. I'm sure you meant Australia, as New Zealand was next in the list. It's common for it's a common B for Aussies to correct a sepo, short for septic tank, rhyming slang for yank, about the two differences. So here's the difference between the two. <laughs> I'm so, sorry, was I just called a septic tank? You were called yes. Um, about the difference between the two. So here's a few facts. A. Mozart did not have a pet kangaroo. B. Hitler was born in Brano and not Bendigo. C. Crocodile Dundee didn't yodel. D. The Von Trapp singers didn't have a didgeridoo break in the middle of singing a few of my favorite things. That is hilarious. And honestly, I'm going to actually go ahead and defend Eric on this one. We all know that Eric sometimes stumbles over his words. It happens. And he does read very quickly um and and how many times did i say austria and australia during those three episodes it's things happen we do try to work on our diction it's our duty as podcasters however mistakes do happen and sometimes our hosts are not always completely actively listening (laughs) enough to catch them but you'd be surprised on how much we go let me say that again and that all that gets cut out so uh, we do apologize if there's miss any misspeaking i'm gonna go ahead and just give i'm gonna have to give you a pass on that one eric since apparently the listener won't but Um, i'm sure it was all in good fun that feedback was phenomenal it was a lot of really fantastic points and uh, Good you detail. Know, yeah, absolutely. So thank you so much for your feedback. We always appreciate it. We always appreciate a correction. Hey, we'll always own up yeah. when we've misspoken or or made a gaffe or, you know, used a little bit of uh, hyperbole. Sure, absolutely. Yeah. I'll own up to it. We also try to be entertaining. So, that, uh, so being hyperbolic happens sometimes. It does. But 
That said, we also do often say, don't take our word for it. Do the research on your own. We've done our own independent research. Sometimes we read things that we think are correct and we're turned out to be wrong. Whoopsie doodles. We're all human. So thank you guys very much for listening. Like I said, um, don't give to us. Give to Nepal. And however, what you can do is you can tell your friends about us. Yeah, that, that, would that be doesn't rad. hurt anything. You can leave us a review on iTunes. You can go check out our website. There's a lot that you can do to support us without having to give us a single penny. Yep. Um, and, uh, and you know what, folks? It is that time again, however. It is. Uh, please join us next time. Same nerd time. Same nerd channel. Nerdonomy.com. Bye. Bye-bye. Hey, finally get to say it! <laughs> okay, so Edmund Hillary, right? Yeah. 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 Up at the top. Uh-huh first person to do it probably not no i don't think so he had sherpas man the sherpas knew what was up they knew how to get there yeah it implies what the sherpas have been up there before freaking white males i hate them me too